0: And you're free now to take your Bible and turn to our text for this evening, which is Psalm 146 on page 525 in the Bibles that are in the pews. Now, I know that when I've been with you all, and it has been some time, I'm not even sure the last time I was here. The last time I was here, we were working together through 1 Samuel, and I hope at some point that we'll get the chance to return to that. This evening, we're turning to the last five psalms, which we may also have opportunity to consider together, beginning with Psalm 146. Now, these last five psalms are sometimes called the Great Hallel because of all the hallelujahs that are there. And although we'll pray in just a moment before we read, I'd like you to notice, if you have your Bible open, notice the beginning of Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. That's one word in Hebrew. Hallelujah. Look at the very end. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Psalm 147. Praise the Lord at the beginning. Look at the end. Praise the Lord. Catching a theme here. Psalm 148. Praise the Lord is the beginning. The ending. Praise the Lord. Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Then at the end. Praise the Lord. And Psalm 150 with Repeated calls for the praise of God begins the same way. Praise the Lord and ends with praise the Lord. That's the ending of the whole of the Psalter. These psalms go together as one great, if you like, hallelujah chorus. And so we have much to praise the Lord for. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Our Father in heaven, you are great. And you are greatly to be praised. You are enthroned above all the world. The heavens of the heavens cannot contain you. Not even the highest of all the creatures that you have made can do anything but before you bow and worship and render you praise and adoration. And we, your people, made in your image, Renewed in that image through Jesus Christ, would even in approaching scripture, not treat it as some cold and distant book of long ago, or simply some sort of self-help way to build up our emotions to prepare for another week. We would come with the whole of the creation to praise you and to take in your word in a way that will flow out in praise. Oh, Lord, help us. We are not equipped in ourselves for this, though we are created for this. We pray, oh God, cause your spirit in us so to work that our hearts may be lifted up with all those things that are true and worthy and glorious, all that is in you and all that you are to us. And so we pray, may we O Lord, hear the sound of your voice calling to your beloved people, and may we praise you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Reading together from Psalm 146, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. the Lord. Well, as we think about these concluding psalms of praise, we have to think about the whole story of the Bible. And so I want to initially take us back. Maybe some of you will remember quite some time ago the, the study we did together in the Psalms in Sunday school, in adult Sunday school. I want to take us back just for a little while to consider what the Psalms are. As we think about the Psalms. You need to remember that the Bible is a story. The Bible is the story of God coming to his people to redeem us. From creation to fall to redemption to glory, that's the whole story of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And that leaves us with a question, doesn't it? What is the Psalter doing here? Well, you could say in a way that the Psalms are the soundtrack that accompanies the story. They tell the same story, But they tell it to us, not with the details of names and dates and precepts and rules and prophecies. That's kind of what you would expect from a story. They tell us the story, rather, in a very personal way. This is, you might say, the emotional, the psychological side of the story. The experiential dimension. And when you read the Psalms, and I trust that you have, I trust they're precious to you, you find them filled with everything from joy to sorrow to doubt to anger, things that we wouldn't probably dare to mention, the Psalms are filled with. There are questions by God's people, like, how long? There are enemies, there's depression, there's victory, there's exultation. there's praise, there's trust, there's confidence, there's joy, there's heartache, and there's trouble. Sounds kind of like life, doesn't it? And it sounds a lot like this psalm. Notice what it says in the psalm. We hear of princes. We hear of breath departing, men dying, plans perishing. But we also hear, as we move further into the psalm, the second half of the psalm beginning in verse 5, we hear of the God who has made all things and who even feeds the hungry. There are those who are hungry, but God feeds them. There are prisoners that the Lord sets free. There are the blind, but the Lord opens their eyes. There are those who are bowed down. This also belongs to the whole story, to your story and my story. And so as we think about the Psalms, there is, if you like, I'll use that word again, those words, a narrative arc. There is a pattern, a plot line. There's forward movement. There's expectation even of our lives in a fallen world, there is redemption. That's the pattern of all the Psalms. One commentator said that the Psalms are always moving from lament, from sorrow, to praise. And you can just look at the initial Psalms to notice that. David, Psalm 3, is running from Absalom, and he's just heartbroken, and he's Experiencing so many emotions in that psalm, and then you come to the end of the psalm, and after all this grief and concern and anxiety, he speaks of his trust and his confidence in the Lord. There's this movement from sorrow and trouble to praise, and it happens again and again and again. Starts well, maybe, but usually in a psalm there are problems, but nearly every one of the psalms ends with the adoration of God. And that's also the the structure of the whole of the Psalter itself. There are five books within the Psalms. And at the conclusion of every one of those books, though there is often great lament and sorrow and trouble, the final word of every book is hallelujah, as it is here at the end of the whole Psalter. There is an intentional structure, in other words, to the Psalms that tell you and me about the truth of our story. Our story is not just lament and trouble, oppression and blindness and being bowed down. That's not the story. At least it's not the whole story. Whatever your experience is, it leads, as a Christian, finally, to this great heartbeat of the whole scriptures, praise. That's good news. That's really good news. Because a lot of times it doesn't feel like that. But this is where the gravity of all of Scripture moves. This is how the Psalter moves. That's the truth of our story. God loves us in Christ. God is bringing us finally to glory. God is working out for us all that is needed for our praise. So, the last sentence of the world isn't weariness, though some days you might feel like that. And the final word isn't kind of raging against the dying of the light. That's not it. The final story, the great conclusion, a cataclysmic chorus of glory is not vanity, insignificance, not fallen, fallen, but glory, glory, praise, to the triune God. That isn't just your experience. That's the story of the whole world. And these Psalms are bringing us really up to that Revelation experience there in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation or think of chapters 21 and 22, the final books of the final chapters of the Bible where everything just builds and builds and builds until your heart just can't contain anymore. And you say, worthy is the Lamb. Praise to God who sits upon the throne. That is the truth of the world that you live in. And that is the soundtrack, so to speak, of true Christian experience. Not that there will not be a cross. There must be a cross. But the ultimate purpose and the final word and the great end to all things is satisfaction, happiness, glory, in praise. I'll put it another way before we get into the text itself. When you think about history and all the narratives of kings rising and falling, empires coming and going, this is the real theme. This is the story that is being written through the course of it all. There will be no more tears. There will be no more hunger. There will be no more death. There will only be joy for you in the presence of God forever. That's what these psalms propel us into. That's the vision that they cast for us. That's the truth of our story. Some of you like to turn to the end, right? You pick up that book and you wonder, is it going to really be worth it? Well, this is the end. It's worth it. It's worth it. Aren't you glad God tells you that? Well, here is the substance of this psalm this evening. The Lord reigns. That's the reason why we can praise the Lord. And you'll notice the concluding words there before that final hallelujah. Verse 10, the Lord will reign. In other words, God is king. That's the great reality. That's the true story. God reigns forever. And this is why we praise him. He deserves the praise because he reigns. But there are two parts to the psalm which I hope to unfold to you now. And the first begins with man. Notice this. Verses 2 through 4 emphasize the true character of man. We ought to praise the Lord because he reigns and not to trust in man. Man won't save you. Notice what it says. Put not your trust, verse 3, in princes... In a son of man in whom there is no salvation. No salvation at all. You have to trust in someone, the psalm is saying. You must. You live in a relational world. If it isn't someone in your family, someone in the government, someone at work, someone in the neighborhood... It'll be yourself. You must put your trust in some person. There must be a source of salvation for you, and everybody has one. But there isn't any salvation in man. And this is a great theme of Scripture over and over and over again. God Hammers at home to us. For instance, in Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in men. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. You have to trust somebody. It's not a good thing to put your trust in men. Appreciate what the Psalm is saying. The person that you trust, even if that's yourself, the person that you trust rules your life. As it goes with them, so it will go with you. Their story is going to be your story. That's pretty despairing for most of us, isn't it? especially because you know a little bit about man, but think about what the scriptures say about the delusion of trusting in men, the vanity of men. Isaiah two twenty two. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. Feel that for a moment. For of what account is he? Just breath. Psalm 62, 9. Though, uh, those of low estate are but a breath. How quickly it passes. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are all together lighter than a breath. Try weighing your breath sometime. That's what it's like to trust in men. Totally useless. And the psalm is rather specific. Notice this. They're in verse three. "Don't put your trust specifically in princes and rulers, and kings, and presidents, and leaders, and people with rank and exalted status, and people with money. God knows, and he says it again and again through his word, that we are drawn to apparently powerful figures, to charismatic people, to people who seem like they've got their act together, and know how to keep their house from being cluttered, and just can give you good advice on the television. Oh, we're drawn to these sorts of figures, to leaders, to thought to thought leaders, to the think tanks, to the important people, to the wealthy people, to the people who stand and make decisions for us. Think how real this is in election cycles. Man, if we could just get another pro-life justice on the Supreme Court, everything would be okay. If only we had a Christian governor. Maybe we're not so inclined to do these things, to say these things in our hearts in this church. But, friends, isn't that really the nature of our hearts? To look for somebody. You have to trust somebody. And guess what? When you get them, their story becomes your story. You trust in them, you'll be as weighty as they are. And how weighty are they? They are lighter than your own breath. Now, of course... Important people, including the psalmist's day, like to style themselves as saviors. This is how Caesar inscribed his name on various monuments and coins. That's the very height of arrogance, however, isn't it? That is, however, what we are inclined to believe. And maybe tell ourselves, somebody, somebody's got the answers. Well, we can't pin our hopes on any leader or politician, not even any churchman or sage because there are two problems that the the psalmist points out to us about man's story trusting in man. Notice what it says there in verse 4 in particular. Well, I'm sorry, I'm going to look first at verse 3. There is no salvation in man. Man doesn't have salvation. You're looking in the wrong place if you're looking to man. Man has to be saved from his weightlessness himself. But the second thing, and this is verse 4 now, notice the descriptions of death. His breath departs. On that very day, his plans perish. Men die. Everyone in this room is going to die. And all those things that you had planned for yourself, all those things you said, I'll get around to it, you're not going to get around to it. You're not going to do it. Your plans are going to perish. Men just end up back in, it says, verse 4. In the ESV, it translates, in whom there is no, sorry, verse 4. He returns to the earth, but better translation would be, he returns to his earth. That's what you're made from. That's what I'm made from. That's where we're going. Unless there is something to interrupt the course of our story. Man, Adam, goes back to Adama in Hebrew, the earth. You have to have then something else, someone else, to trust him. And that someone else has to have two things that, again, are here revealed in these verses about man. Salvation can only come from someone who has an enduring presence and an invincible duration. Notice what it says. His spirit, man's spirit, departs. God alone has the immensity of eternity God alone endures forever the vision of salvation that the Bible gives you isn't 22 guys running around a field and getting a trophy every year if your team wins tonight that's not going to be salvation you might be happy for the next year and then guess what they have to do it all over again you go to the doctor the doctor says we'll try this pill it works guess what you're going to be back My friends, we need someone who endures that we might have a salvation that is size, and God-sized salvation is forever. But we also need, for our salvation, someone who has entire self-sufficiency and all power. In man it says, there is No salvation, no help. That's the same word translated there in verse 5. Blessed is he whose help, whose salvation is the God of Jacob. There isn't any help in man. Because man is utterly dependent, requiring the help of the God who made him. God alone is our salvation. So we ought to ask ourselves... Who am I trusting? And if you don't ask yourself that tonight, don't worry. The Lord will give you opportunities to realize. Because very soon you're going to be disappointed by someone, probably even tonight. It'll be someone on the road. You're trusting them to stay in their lane, and they don't. You're trusting them to stay in their lane with their comments. When you get home and talk nicely, to they won't. God is determined to strip us of all idols, including all trust in anything that is not him, not eternal, not self-sufficient. The story of man is the story of transience, <laughs> and you ought not to put your trust there. So the psalm was brutally honest. Man doesn't deserve any praise. Tomorrow morning, probably co-workers will be talking about the big game and who won and If it's not, that'll be something else, and the greatness of people or performance reports. There's always somebody to look to for praise, isn't there? But this is brutally true. Who are we? Not people of praise. Not people who deserve to be trusted. And that isn't the story that God intends for us. We have all fallen short of God's glory by our sin. We must be saved by him. And that's the real story. That's the real story. Not a temporal fading life, but an eternal God who reigns. So notice the second half and the beauty and the glory of this. The first half, don't trust in man. The second part, trust in the Lord who reigns. He will save you. It opens in verse 5. Blessed is he, happy is he, whose help is the God of Jacob. Think of that. God wants you to be happy. God intends for you to be delighted, to be a delighted Christian, not, not, not with all the things that happen in this world, but truly to be a happy Christian in his salvation because he has in himself that eternity, that self-sufficiency, that love, that redeeming gift of his Son, that is the character, that is the nature, that is the personification of his reign. He keeps, verse 6 says, truth and faithfulness forever. That's the great story. The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns and he is not only able to save you, but he will, dear Christian, save you. There is salvation in the God of God. Of Jacob, and happy are you who trust in him. This bears a little bit of consideration. The Psalms open with this word. Verse 5 Blessed, happy. Think back to Psalm 1. Happy, blessed is the one who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, but his delight, his happiness, is in the law of the Lord. God intends for you to be happy. God doesn't just speak to us this evening and remind us of our temporality that we might be a little bit depressed and try to do better. He intends to make us happy by the Savior himself. He is the king who reigns to save And just think of all the the visions of men to save themselves, campaign promises, whatever else, and how ultimately a lot of what men attempt to do for our salvation ends up oppressing other people and destroying ourselves. God's salvation accomplishes the highest goal of his praise and works together for our good and his glory. Because he reigns forever, he reigns in goodness, and he reigns to save us and make us happy. Now, I want you to observe how the psalm talks about this. This is important. Looking at verses 5 and following, it speaks of the one who made heaven and earth, and the sea, and all that is in them, and keeps faith forever. He executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. And then we go into this wonderful litany of things that the Lord does. He sets prisoners free, opens the eyes of the blind, lifts up the bowed down, and on and on it goes, glory for those who are oppressed and humiliated. This is God's saving reign. This is what he reigns to do. This is what it means that he is a savior. He does all of this. And... I imagine if you just exercise a little imagination this evening, you can find yourself somewhere in this list, can't you? Of things that the Lord delivers. Ways in which he comes to save. This is the character of his reign. These are, I want you to notice, acts of God in his covenant love. God binds himself to do these things, For an unworthy and hopeless people, not in a bare contractual arrangement, not even in a simple sort of feeling of affection, but in covenant, God is determined to raise his people up out of oppression, out of misery, out of sin. And we know this because our Savior comes and renews all the fullness of the covenant of grace and accomplishes it in himself as he goes to the cross on the night in which he's betrayed what does he say there at the table as he gives it to his disciples this is my blood of the new covenant this is what he has covenanted to do this is what Jesus comes to accomplish Notice how the psalm directly points us to Jesus. Listen to what Jesus gives as an answer to John when John in prison is wondering, are you really the Messiah? Matthew 11, Jesus answers, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed, happy, is the one who has not offended me. Did you catch that? The eyes of the blind are opened. That's what it says here in the psalm. Those who are bowed down, unable to move, are lifted up. The lame can walk. The wicked are brought down, but he watches over the widow and the, the fatherless. Do you see this? These are the signs of the Messiah and this is what Jesus said he would do even at the beginning of his ministry we read Jesus opening the scroll of Isaiah and declaring these things or in another place from Isaiah Isaiah 35 we read this wonderful prophecy of the coming of Christ say to those who have an anxious heart be strong fear not behold your God will come with vengeance with the recompense of God he will come and save you then the eyes of the blind will be opened are you catching a theme here the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the lame man shall leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute sing for joy. This is the reign of the Messiah. And this is what Jesus does again and again and again in his ministry. We are meant to see in all of Jesus' miracles, our God has come to save us. This is the one who reigns forever. Forever. And we're meant to work a little bit further back into the psalm. And notice what it says. Who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. Remember the opening words of John. The word was in the beginning with God. The word was God The same was in the beginning with God. All things were created by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus Christ is fully presented for your joy here. This is the story told in song of the one in whom we trust, whose story rules the life of the Christian. Now just notice a couple of things as we come rapidly to a conclusion. Think about Jesus passing through Galilee on his way up to Jerusalem, miracle after miracle. How many times, think about this, does anybody know, how many times does Jesus open the eyes of the blind? It's quite a number, isn't it? How many times does he make the lame to walk? It happens repeatedly. How many times does he heal lepers and raise up those who are bowed down and bring comfort to the widows and the orphans? How many times? He could have done it once. Have you ever considered this? He could have done it once, and that would be enough to say, this is the reigning king. This is the one in whom all God's promises are yes and amen. This is the story of the covenant. This is the grand amen. This is where everything leads up. This is the hallelujah. But he keeps doing it again and again and again and again. You should get the point again and again. The signs that he does point to him being true God. Why? Why does he keep on going? Well, you could say that's his character, isn't it? This is what he does in his reign, and that's certainly true. And, of course, he, in his love, is determined in compassion to rescue all that the Father is drawing to him. But there is something else in his miracles, and that is the poetry of the Psalms. In the Psalms, you notice again and again, repetition and I'll keep saying that again and again notice the kind of repetition that even exists there in verse 5 blessed is he whose help is in the god of jacob whose hope is in the lord is god that's basically saying the same thing isn't it okay not quite identical it fleshes it out in the second part but it's basically the same thing it's repetition The Psalms, and all Hebrew poetry, loves to build in this kind kind of contrasting, rhyming, paralleling, developmental way. That's the style of Hebrew poetry. And when you read this, you might not think of it as poetry initially, but that's what it is. The Lord is the help of Jacob. The Lord is his hope. So let's ask a deeper question for just a moment. Why do we have this kind of repetition in the Bible? I mean, doesn't that feel like you could get kind of bored? I heard it the first time. And if you were reading a manual on how to fix your car, you wouldn't get it more than once, right? You need it once. That's enough. I don't need you to tell me poetically, change the carburetor, make sure you unbolt it so it can be removed. I don't need to have repetition, but I do need to have it in God unfolding himself to me. When Jesus comes and executes the miracles of the divine king come to save his people, he does them again and again. Why? Because there is a poetry about his ministry. There is a paralleling to our need. There is a filling up of our understanding in his repetition of the miracles of the Messiah. And he does these things over and over again until we come to that final moment when the signs are completed and the the Lord himself cries out, it is finished and the way of the wicked is turned upside down and the spirit of Jesus departs and his body is committed to the earth. And his plans do not fail. Because he reigns. And he reigns in resurrection glory. This is the great story. This is your story. This is how it all ends. This is what it all leads to. The reigning king then deserves all The praise, this is the arc of your whole life. This is the trajectory to which you're leading. Not a better house, not a good retirement, not the praise of your colleagues, not a happy life. Your life and mine is leading up to this grand chorus, and you will never be satisfied without it, of hallelujahs to the King of Kings, who comes dying to save us and testifying to all that he will do now and in glory by his miracles. And so the story and the call this evening is rather simple. The, the Psalms lead to this. You, by now, you should know where this is, is heading. What's the application you're asking yourself? When the Psalms say praise the Lord, you're not just sort of meant to hear something. Oh, that's, that's a nice thing to do. No, you're meant to start doing it. We are meant to be people who praise the Lord. And while we have breath Every breath, not to be exhaled in vanity, but to be taken up, breathing in the word of God and praising God with all that is in us. Wonderfully, on the grave of the great, the eloquent, the excellent Spurgeon are these lines of William Cooper the deeply depressed. When this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. Oh, and how much beyond that, on the day of resurrection, we ought to praise the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank and praise you that you have determined the course the ark, the structure of all history. We praise you that you are working out your purpose, that we would give you undying praise. We thank you, O Christ, that you have offered yourself in place of us wretched sinners, that we might be holy through your sacrifice and live forever in the happiness of your salvation. Teach us, we pray, to be people of praise, not to trust in men, in whom there is no help. May we trust in the Lord our God and in happiness give you the praise. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.